Today we have a harrowing story indeed, and if you've not seen Darren on John Wedge's channel, you're in for a shocking account today of what happened to Darren, but he's just, I've just had lunch with him, and he's the most down-to-earth guy, just relaxed, just natural, and I think that's what's so heartbreaking. You see where he is in his life now, and, what, and you think about how did he get here coming through this, because a lot of the people who suffered the same abuse are not alive, are in prison, heavily addicted to drugs, and all the usual destructive paths that people take because they're self-medicating because of the trauma of what happened to them as kids. And we've gone over that so many times on this channel. Behind a lot of crimes is a story of childhood abuse. And Darren was no exception. He did a decade and a half in the prison system. Now, Ash, who books my guests, has never, ever spent so long with anyone because of the size of Darren's story. He's Usually Ash films like 30 minutes with someone and sends it to me to look at. And Ash has filmed eight hours with Darren already, which is absolutely mind-blowing. Darren is also working on his book. And I've been discussing that with him at lunch as well. Hopefully he can get his life story out there so we can get this important information to an even bigger audience to prevent more victims and raise the public's awareness. Thank you very much for coming on, Darren. Yeah, well, thank you, Sean, for, you know, having me on the show. Yeah, thank you. You've got an unusual accent. I'm trying to place it. <laughs> it's uh, it, it's Bristol from the West Country. Bristol? Yeah. Okay. Down in, you know, West Country with the, as they call it, you know, carrot crunchers. And, and you're in yeah. London now? Um, East Anglia. East Anglia? Yeah. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. So... Was that where you were born? Was that that yeah, side of the world? I, I was born in uh, right. Sorry, I was born okay. and raised in uh, you know Bristol. Yeah, um, a little place, well, a big area called Southmead. Yeah, it was uh, December the twenty seventh, nineteen sixty nine. So, and how did your parents meet? Uh, basically, um, when my parents met, my mum was very very young. She was, I think, I just turned twelve or was leading up to 12, and Dad was, you know, a, a bit older, well, quite a lot older than Mum. I think Dad, had, when they met, had left school and everything. So there was, you know, a bit of an age gap between them two. But, yeah, they, they met in the local uh, area of Safemead in Bristol. Yeah. And what kind of background, and, and how did that relationship work out? So uh, Mum was from a, a, a Romany gypsy background, Mum, with people that lived in a house, she was the youngest of 21. Oof. Yeah, in a three-bed house. Youngest of 21 people in, in a house. Um, Dad came from a, a working back, back, uh, past background. Of a, he was, like I think, the second eldest of five kids. So, yeah, and his, you know, both had parents, you know, mum and dad together sort of thing. But, yeah, mum's life was a bit different than dad's but her family were kind of like you know really really close as well as dad's were you know really close yeah and abuse started at home well no because when i was born as i say december i was you know when i was born mum was uh 12 when she gave birth to me Grief. 
yeah she was 12 like i say dad had left you know left school mum was 12 and it was kind of like uh, i was born premature so i was li- i literally came into the world without a fighting chance because back then when you're you're a kid at 50 well 50 years ago you know life expectancy wouldn't uh, i think it was something like two or three percent so literally i had to fight from the minute i opened my eyes or i could breathe you know so then uh, I was went to a like a special care baby unit for something like three or four months because of the being premature, being so small, and um, I think to hide the embarrassment because of my grandparents, you know, mum's family being quite rough, uh, dad's family being normal. My grandparents took me in until I were I think, just over nine. So growing up, kind of you know, to me it was like nan and grandma's, you know, were mum and dad, and my parents were like Nelly and Dave, you know, so, but, you know, growing up with Nan and Gramps was absolutely fantastic. It was a beautiful, beautiful time, some beautiful, you know, beautiful memories of growing up with them. But yeah, so it was, I think it was well, meant to be grandparents to, to avoid the embarrassment because they were embarrassed on my mum's side being quite rough and, but, it, you know, they were good people. They were just, I think it was their characters and so many of them they thought it was best that I go and live, you know, with them. Then come nine and a half, it was decided that I go and live. It sprung on me, even my parents were, and that I would, that Nan and Gramps weren't mum and dad, they were Nan and Gramps. And that Nellie and Dave were mum and dad. And I was took back to live with them. Uh, a lot different from what I came from. A lot, lot different. It really, really was. I came from this beautiful, tranquil, you know, mm. house where everyone was calm. We ate well, clean bedding. You know, we had a lovely house. It was very relaxed, very soothing. Got things, you know, we were like a family unit. Then I've kind of like <laughs> shut, you know, opened the front door to, in my eyes. I mean, I've got no shame in saying it, like hell. My dad was a drinker. Dad was a heavy drinker, still is. Mum liked to drink as well. Um, you know, Dad's still with us, um, but everybody knows of how I felt about him, so it was no big secret, you know. Uh, Dad was uh, a drinker, um, a very, very violent man to myself, my brothers, and to Mum. You know, uh, in the house, there was um, there was a lot of abuse in the house. You know, mentally, physically, you know, verbal abuse. I was forever seeing mum, you know, get beat up. Um, you know, if it wasn't mum, it was us as kids getting beat up. Um, just a horrible, horrible, horrible environment. You know, no kids you'd have to, to have gone through that, you know. It was, what kind of things would he pick on you guys for? <laughs> anything. Anything. It could be anything. I remember getting it. Um, one of the, the things that stuck out in my mind was the, J, the day John Lennon died, and I didn't. I was. I think I was in 1980, and I I didn't know who he was, and he was like really upset because you know Lennon had died, and by all accounts that was one of his heroes. And um, I remember I didn't say anything. I think I looked, and he. Just, well, he just lost his rag and just literally went in, you know, beat me like a man. Completely beat me like a man because someone had passed and, you know, he was drunk. He had to take his anger and frustration of, 
you know, John dying, I, I, I copped it, you know. Um, other events in the house, if you get out of bed, well, when he got himself out of bed, you know, because he never worked or nothing. He was just too lazy to work. It was just that's what drinkers do, don't they? You know, they, they live their life with the can in their hand, or, or in his case, the bottle. And um, they think that, you know, society owes them one, and it doesn't. You know, we went without as kids because of that, you know, because of lack of funding in the house and didn't really eat great and didn't look the part when you were dressed, you know, and, you know, anything could start him off. It could be if you woke up with a migraine, you were going to get it, you know, and you got it big time. Uh, the house, it was, if he was sat downstairs with us, you could never make a noise. You had to be set, you had to be sat dead quiet. You could never, ever, ever make a noise. My God, if you made a noise, you got it. Was it always with his fists, or did he use, like, belts or any other fists, kinds of things? belts, uh, cider bottles, because he was a, a cider drinker, uh, threw cider bottles at me. Um, anything, anything he can get his hands on, that man. Anything that was in his reach. I got it, Mum got it. I remember one day that... Um, he was watching telly. It was at night. It was about nine o'clock. It was like a rarity for him to be in or or to be sat down with us and being. He wasn't in a good mood. He was just transfixed on the TV. And I remember hearing Mum walk down the stairs, and he got up. He went to the door, it behind the door, and as Mum opened the door, he put a glass into the side of her head, just completely pushed. And Mum just literally, I remember Mum looking at him and just saying, "What have I done?" You know, and he just sat down as if it was like a normal thing to do in front of us kids. You know, and it's like you're trying to get up to go and see your mum, and you couldn't. You know, he's just, I was like 10, and that's to watch my mum in pain. You know, I've seen my mum, uh, my mum nearly lost her eye for one of his attacks. The man's a brutal savage. I, I could literally talk for a year about his antics. What did he do to for your mum to almost lose her eye? Poked her in the eye. Yeah, she had to have a, there's one photo uh, of if the family left with mum with her eye patch and she nearly lost it, completely pushed it through. She nearly lost her eye. Yeah, she completely, she had to jump out of a window once on a balcony to avoid him. You know, I remember um, him taking us out in a car and it was late at night and making, it was about half past 12 at night and he chucked me and mum out of a car and we had to hide behind the edge as he was going up and down looking for us. You know, I don't know where Christian was or John. Somebody must, me other two brothers, if someone must have had Denver tonight. But yeah, you know, abuse in that house could be at any forgiven moment. There was, what well, it needed no reason. There was no reason. It just depended on, on the person of how he felt and what you were going to get. He was a very, very hard, violent, evil man. So when you went to school, did that get you away from the violence? No, because... Um, because money being tight, you know, we never had the best of clothes, you know, didn't smell great, because certain things um, just didn't smell great. So, going to school, become a victim of bullying, you know, because you didn't have the right clothes, um, didn't really have the greatest, greatest of haircut, uh, had a horrible smell of clothes not being washed. You know, it was the only set of clothes I had. I had no other clothes. So I, had to, I basically lived in this school uniform. I had nothing else to wear. So I was literally in it seven days a week. There was, there was nothing else to me to wear. 
uh, had a kids, you know, I was quite a short kid, blonde hair, cut all over the place. You know, weren't brilliant. And, um, yeah, so got bullied at school basically straight away. And were you, were you um, small in school as well? Yeah, I was tiny, mate. Yeah, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm sort of like five foot six now, so I'm not, uh, you know, the biggest of blokes, you know, and I'd imagined it back then because you're growing sort of thing, but, you know, it stopped for me at a certain age. Mm. Um, the, you know, I was about five foot, skinny little thing, just a mop of blonde hair, just odd, ill-fitting clothes. And um, you're a victim, aren't you? You're a target. So I used to think, right, I used to leave house in the morning thinking, great, I'm glad to be at that place. But I used to take a slow, steady walk to school because I knew the minute my hand touched the school door, I'd be getting beat up and I'd be getting bullied and I'd be getting victimised straight away just because of my appearance. But it wasn't my fault. You know, it wasn't my fault. You know, I, I couldn't help that. You know what I mean? But Why did they put you in the special unit at school? Because uh, I became a little bit in, in school because I couldn't read and write. Because nobody really sat me down and showed me how to read and write or, or taught me anything about life. I became a little bit disruptive in school. If I had a subject like with English and stuff that I didn't understand it, rather than put my hand up and say, look, I need help. I can't read this, you know, paragraph and I can't really write. So I play up in class, kind of not do as I was told. Um, so I just didn't want to let everybody else know in the class that as well as being, you know, a trampy kid that I was a kid that couldn't read and write. Just kind of had enough of the, the bullying that I just felt too embarrassed to put my hand up. You know, so I thought by being disruptive, by just being an idiot as such, not a clang, so I had no friends in school because the way I was. Um, so I wouldn't do what a teacher told me, so I'd get sent to a place called Rescue Unit. If it was a a classroom where I had like three or four kids in it at a time generally boys even though it was a mixed school but it was generally boys and um, they put you in there because you know for discipline so that was that was rescuing it for you Is that where you met Mr Flavin who actually said he's now in prison Yeah that's correct yeah Mr Flavin yeah he was the rescue unit teacher it started off with Oh, I forget. There was two teachers, but he stood down, and Mister Flavin came in. He was an art teacher, and he took over from the original rescue unit teacher to obviously discipline boys. And um, you know, for the first couple of days, you know, because he knew obviously I couldn't read and write, read and write. That he knew I had a talent for art, and he would give me pens and paper and let me draw stuff. And he asked me one day and said, oh, you know, you've drew, drew, like drew a, a vase with flowers. And he said, how come? I said, because I want to give it to my mum. I said, because, you know, we can't have this at home because if we had a vase, it would get smashed on my mum's head. So if I give this to my mum, then, you know, she ain't going to get hurt. So, and he obviously knew I had a, a passion for heart, like art, sorry, artwork. And um, he would always... When he'd come up to you sort of thing to question you or look at your art, he would always come over the top of you sort of thing to look over you, like as they look down and you sat on the chair. And at first I didn't really take no notice of it. I just thought, you know, he was interested in my heart and he was like looking over at my work and just, and that was it. Yeah. What was his ulterior motive? As a, a couple of days went by, I felt him 
uh, pushing his full body against me and kind of pushing me into the chair and into the, like the chair, in, into the table. And, um, you know, he would kind of, it really first started off with him kind of like touching my hair. And, you know, when you look out and think, what are you doing sort of thing? And he was like, oh, and I didn't say nothing, but I, I did look up and he was kind of like, he was like putting his hand from my hair and he, he kind of like blew onto my ear, which I felt a bit uncomfy with. So as I kind of moved, well, this is the first time everything, everything happened anyway. So as I looked at him when he kind of blew into my ear and was playing with my ear, he pushed me into the table. So your table's like this. He pushed me into the table. As I went in, he pulled the chair, pushed me over the table and put his hand down the back of my trousers and started rubbing my backside. Then his hand gone into my, you know, genitals, I suppose you call it. I don't know, I'm not really clever. Um, your, your private parts. He went on to your, your private parts of your body and began, like, really, 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 like, forcefully, you know, touching me up sort of thing. Um, that was kind of the first introduction. I was very confused, you know, very, very confused. Then... I had a bite mark on my shoulder. Somebody had put a bite mark. And at the same time, he saw the bite mark on my shoulder and asked me how it got there. And I wanted someone to confide in. I wanted someone to open up to. And I told him, but I told the wrong person, the person that did this to me. And um, he just knew I had nowhere to run. He knew that at home, I had no one to listen to. Dad being an alcoholic, mum being beat. Couldn't exactly go home from school and see the mum, you know, or dad. That I'm in pain. They knew the pain I was in. They knew the pain I was in. You know, so I couldn't really go home and open up to them because I had no one to listen to, Sean. You know, no one was listening. And I thought I'd do the right thing by telling the teacher what I'd gone through. I, I was unaware that it was a, a pedophile. And I'd been for some time. And what he used to do then was make a point that the rescue unit, that he'd be the only boy in there at any time I was there. If we had another lad come in from a class that was disruptive, he was only there for a matter of hours, then gone and taken out again to get back on his normal class. Myself, I was kept there. And once I told him about what happened with the bite mark and how it got there, um, he's just started literally heavily, heavily sexually, abu sexually abused me. So you, you can imagine a typical day for Darren going to school was leaving hell, which was home, not knowing if you're walking to school, if your mum's going to be alive when you come home, what you're going to come home to. So you got all that. Not really been fed because we never had food in the house. Um, then you're walking to school to think, great, in 10 minutes time I'm going to get bullied. Then half hour after that, after registration and after being bullied, I'm going to go to a rescue unit. And what a lovely day I'm going to have there. You know? So you typical day for me would, like I say, you go into registration. Well, go to school. Before registration, you get bullied. Go into registration. Go from there to rescue unit. On the way there, you get bullied. You go in the rescue unit. You sit down. The minute you sat in the chair, the blind come down. The door was locked. 
and he was like a dog on ink. He was literally like a dog on ink. You know, this man was all over me because he knew I had no one to tell. He knew I had no one to run or anywhere to run to. That I was alone. I was scared. I was in pain. I was frightened. I was a young lad. I just wanted someone just to basically, you know, pour out their hand and say, look, you know, everything's going to be all right. But it never did, mate. It never did. How did this guy end up getting busted? Do you know? Yeah, it was um, in, I think it was 1987. He had got done for grooming a lad since 1983, just after I got put in the care. He found himself another lad, and the other lad exposed him after four years of abuse. And he got arrested. He was sent to prison, got out. Committed another offence against boys. Went back to prison. He's out, been out again. Now he's back in again for acts against boys. They give them such short sentences, don't they? It's ridiculous. That's the thing, some of these sort of people, you know, they, um, you know, if you're an ice burglar, commercial burglar, drug dealer, you know, or anything, armed robber, you, you're going to get big sentences. If you play with kids, ruin kids' lives, you're going to get either a community service order or you're going to get a two-year prison sentence. It's all upside down. <laughs> it is, mate. It's, it's, it's what we live in. So this made you not want to go to school and you started just being a truant then? Literally. I um, Every time I went to school, I was getting raped. I was getting raped. I had enough of the pain. I couldn't take it any longer. Like I say, I had one or two choices. So a, a typical day for Darren was... Say, for instance, if I went to school Monday, I'd get raped. If I threw it a Tuesday, I'd be left alone, where I can try and heal my body. Then I'd go in from being truant Tuesday night and get beat by my dad for not going to school. Or for my dad just being my dad and beating me. Then I'd go to school Wednesday and get raped. Then I'd truant Thursday, have a day where I can heal my body or try and wash in a lake because things weren't great at home, go home, get beat, go to school, get raped. Saturday and Sundays, when I should be out playing football with, football with my friends, or watching Saturday morning TV, or doing what young lads do, ours was, well, getting beat. That was that was our weekend. We had a lot to look forward to. We had to live with a man with a very, very, very bad temper, and bad habits. We really did. So you got in trouble for not going to school and ended up in Avon House? Yeah, so what happened was, got called into school and the worst thing I ever done was try and go to the headmaster and the headmistress and was telling them about Mr. Flavin that I was being raped by a teacher. That was the worst thing I ever done was go and tell the truth. That was the worst thing I ever done. I wanted help. I went to them. I only threw it about three or four times. It wasn't like I was a regular. I was. It was like in the early days of truancy, but they were kind of like pie on it. So I've approached the headmaster. His name was Mister Spivey. He was a part-time judge, and Miss Yuren, she was the deputy head. I approached them. I tried explaining my case. They were more concerned with me not being raped, but with truanting, and told me that what happened to me was in my head. As punishment, they sent a letter home, and me and Mum were taken to a place called Avonhouse North. Anybody in my, if my age gap now 50 would know from Bristol, 
that in the early 80s and the mid-80s, you were taken there as a precaution before you went to court for them to frighten you. So you know, if you, when you go there, if you didn't go back to school, your next step is court. So we get taken to Avonhouse North. I was with my mum. My mum was sat there when she heard it come right out my mouth as well. That I tried explaining to the bench of people. It was, I think, again, they were like magistrates, but it was in an office. And I opened up. That could someone please help me? I'm in pain. I'm being raped. My mum turned a blind eye, and so did the school. And well, they were part of the school. They were even ace north, and he told me that if I mentioned it again, I'd be getting put in a car, and that tomorrow I was to go back to school and forget everything that ever happened. But he did promise me that if I did go back to school, I wouldn't be going into the rescue unit. So. Um, I go back to school, I go into registration, I get told from registration that I'm going back over to the rescue unit. And I just couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe it. Luckily for me, on that day when I go back, there was two other lads in there. But they weren't really lucky because they lasted about hour each and they were sent back to their classes. As they left, give it five minutes, the door was locked, the blinds were down, I was pushed over the desk, and I was brutally, heavily, sexually abused, once again, by Mr. Flavin. The abuse lasted for about 40 minutes. Jesus. 40 minutes. In order for my screams, he would put socks or underpants in my mouth, put his hand over my face whilst doing it, uh, whilst getting himself excited, would bite pinch um i had no control whatever he done to me i just i was lifeless i was lifeless and uh i just couldn't take it i couldn't take the pain any longer i couldn't take the pain of school i couldn't take the pain because of things what were happening at home which weren't, which weren't right um then you know i started trying again i had to i was in too much pain my back pattern was, was completely, was always bleeding. I had to put, I had to roll up tissue paper and insert it into your backside to oh, soak up the blood. Jesus Christ. I had to do that. I had no choice. I couldn't stop the bleeding. Mm. You know, it wasn't as if I was living in a house which, you know, where we could have, you, you could, I had to keep wearing the same clothes because we had no other clothes. There was no money in the house. So I had no choice but to wear the same old blooded underwear and, you know, the clothes I had on. I had no choice. So I resorted back to throwing it in again. It was, the weather was nice. It was warm. I used to go to a place called Enleys Lake in Bristol, which most would know from Bristol, Clemover, and it was a place where I felt safe for six hours. I knew that no one would hurt me. I wasn't going to get raped. I knew that when I left, I was going to get beat. That I did know, that I'd get beat when I left. But do you know what? I sooner get beat than get raped. Mm. Because, you know, the beats, after a while, you become used to. The rape, you don't. Because as well as being anally raped, it's what comes with it. It's what else they do to you. So I got taken to court on the 2nd of June, 1982. Uh, went with my mum and our old, our old next-door neighbour. She came with us. We got on the bus going down. I think it was the 77. Uh, it was a lovely hot day, and we had to go into the old, it was called the Old Bridewell Juvenile Courts in Bristol. 
So we go in, you had to book in, go into this big waiting room, and there was myself and I think another family in there with a kid. And uh, there was a kid as we got in there, but he got called into court. So we got called in, we had to sit in there for like three or four hours. It was a very, it was, I remember it being, the chairs were this sort of texture. The old wooden chairs, like the ones that are at your backside. And um, the walls were like green with spots on them. Horrible place, very cold, even though it was warm outside. We eventually got, get called into court. And there were six chairs. There was a bench of three, obviously, magistrates, because of being, you know, juvenile. I was told to sit in front of mum. Um, they started talking. They asked me why. You know, you're mitigating circumstances as to why you're drawing in from school. Then Darren being Darren, done the same thing again. Told the truth. That's all I'd done. Was told the truth. I broke down and told them I was being raped. I'm told I was being beat and other things at home that were going on. That was happening to me. They weren't interested about the home stuff. They were more concerned about the school and said that I was a liar. And I told them I wouldn't. And as a result, they gave me a four and a half year care order to an approved school and the minute they said I was going away that was the only time my mum ever showed emotion and told me she loved me and to be brave that was the only time that woman ever showed me any emotion in her life because she was shocked I was shocked I was broke down I just told the truth they asked me why I didn't go to school and I told them so basically I got a four and a half year approved school order for telling the truth. But no one was prepared to look at my back passage or to help me. They just brushed me off. No one. That just started a whole new chapter of abuse at Avon House North. Uh, that that was Avon House North, which was before the court. This was now the magistrate, a uh, juvenile court. Okay. And uh, I was then taken from the juvenile court to an approved school in Bath, called Freeways, 181 Old Froome Road, Coombe Down, in Bath. It was uh, a big house, uh, dead opposite a place called St Martin's Hospital in Bath. It was um, the, the house and the land come under the Wansdyke Parish, but it was owned by a chap called uh, Lord Bath, who owns Longleat House and Longleat Safari Park. That's also his place and his land of where that is. So I was taken to there on the 2nd of the 6th, 1982, with two other lads. As we, on our way from the court to there, we went in the van, we had these little kitty cuffs on. Little tiny little kitty cuffs, because I wasn't the biggest. Because you were given an approved school order, which meant you were now part of the state. You belonged to, you know, basically to the government. You were one of their little pets. Um, taken, taken into this house... It was a lovely day, but the minute we got into the approved school, everything just felt cold. Because of the heat outside, it just all vanished. It was dark, it was dingy, and it was cold. And that was my first ever taste of an, of an approved school. I was 12 years old. Literally. And what happened next? So, your first day you go in, you get questioned. You have to go in, say question. you don't get questions. You, you, they take all your information. They sit you down. They try explaining that you've got a four and a half year care order. I know you're going to be there for. I was upset and I was asking, you know, when can I see my mum? Can I see my mum? Is my mum okay? 
they weren't really interested in is my mum okay or they just said to me that I'd be there until I was 16 and a half. I wasn't great in math, so I was trying to like work out in my head how long that was. So I kind of had a, a gist of that I was there for a long, long time. It wasn't going to be just, just an overnight stay. So they go in, they, they ask you all about your personal life. Um, they ask you personal questions. They kind of like, one of them it really hit me when they asked me, that, who, who, did I, who, did I, who did I love more? And it was the way they said it, which I never forgot about. It's always stayed in my head. Do I love mummy or daddy? And I thought, well, I'm 12, mum or dad. So I just said, well, I love mum more than dad. And he explained, they asked me why. So I told him, because dad's violent, dad does other things, which I don't like. Dad causes a lot of pain. Dad hurts us, he hurts mum, he hurts me. Um, They left it at that, you know, they told me about what was going to happen in the house. They, you know, in the home, there are boys and girls there. These are the rules. This is what you would do. You would go to school. You would do this. Then you get taken on a tour. They take you to the dormitories. They give you a bed. They give you a bed pack. You unpack all your bed. They just tell you the rules. They show you where the school is. Then, you know, when school finished, um, you meet all the other boys as you go around. You kind of like... And alarm bells didn't ring at the time. But when I look back now, they, when you meet the other kids, they were lifeless. There was no banter. There was a big garden, but no one was out there playing. They were eating either like cowering or just out the way. No one was really seen. It was like an eerie sort of noise. Um. Then after you shown your dorm and stuff, you meet a lad. He's, he's the head lad. His name's John Beecham. He was like eighteen. He'd been in the system all his life, but had chose to stay on and help staff. And basically, which I thought was to look after us young ones show us the ropes of how things were. And, um, you know, you go down, you, you do, you meet him, you're introduced to him, horrible guy, bit slimy, not the best of characters, I must admit. And I was meeting like other lads, but they weren't really saying a lot, you know. There was girls there as well, there was, you know, a mixture of boys and girls, but, you know, the staff made it very impossible, even though you saw them, for you to mix, they always got in between. If you if you were talking to a girl, you know, I was twelve. You like trying to say like hello, what's your name? I'm Darren. Staff would literally come out and pull you apart. They didn't like it. They didn't really like anybody chatting. If you even if you were chatting to a lad, or walking around in two, staff would come out and interrogate and what you were doing, why you talking, you shouldn't be talking, and split you up and send you on your way. Um, that day you got I, went, I unpacked at a. I made my bed, and the guy next to me, his name was Donald, and young, he, he messed up my bed. So I was only 12, I was a bit annoyed, I was upset, and we had a bit of a ruck together, but nothing come of it. But I got in trouble because I blacked his eye that day in the fight. And, you know, I was taken down to the office, basically disciplined for fighting, disciplined for more so for Donald's eye being blacked. Um, but we, that night we kind of like re didn't relax because I was upset. My emotions were all over the place. I was crying, which is in a bit of a dang place. You have your tea, you have your wash, you get ready for bed, you go in your bunk. And um, then anybody knows it, they're watching this. There's a thing called first night uh, initiation. You get first night beats. When with the staff, they make you strip off to your underpants. You have to lay with your hands, with your head back. 
and they get the lads to put like shoes in their pillowcases. It don't last for long, three, four minutes, if you're lucky, two minutes. And what they do, they have to give you the first night beats. So every boy there has to come and give you a beat with the pillowcase with their possessions in. So you get out of it, you know, you get it over and done with. You're led there, you're kind of like bruised. You're, but that's the initiation. Initiation. You, you're in it. And um, see, so that was my first night in Sakara. Then I was taken about half past ten. The dormitory door opened. It was my first proper insight to freeways. It was my first proper ever introduction to John Beecham was that night. I then found out the reason why I got punished for blacking Donald's eye because he was about to be in, he was about to go and get sold. Well, little lad, born into the care system, had no parents. He was like we all were, taken down to the TV. we had a place called a TV room where certain nights you'd be able to go in as a group, sit down in silence, have your cocoa, and watch 10 minutes of TV. It was a big room underneath the dormitories, had a big TV with about 20, 30 chairs. All our chairs around, curtains were always pulled, you know, and I was taken down by John Beecham, led in. There was Cloyville, uh, John Turner, and a guy called Ken Watkins, who was part of that home as a volunteer, but he was a head porter at St. Martin's Hospital across the road. You kind of go in, and I was led to these men, where they kind of like, I was presented to them, and they would touch you up, rub you, pass you around. Nothing evil and crude happened that night as such, but I was just put into it. But there were, behind me was Donald and another lad. I was taken away, as in back to the dormitory, uh, they weren't. John Beecham took me back. I got into bed. He pulled back the bed clothes and started to masturbate me. That was the head boy. He started to masturbate me. But he, you know, so as well as having your beats, as well as, well as being um, touched up downstairs, you're now, you know, being masturbated off by the head boy. And this guy had a disfigured face. Yeah, <clears throat> he was a weird guy. He was about nearly six foot, quite stocky, black hair, but he just looked odd. He was a very, very, very odd, you know, very odd guy. Very, very odd guy. Um, You know, with John, that was my first night and my first proper, proper meeting with him. Uh, Woke up on the Wednesday, went to school. I was completely numb because the school was in the place. They didn't give a damn about my reading, writing, or anything of what I was going through. It was the teacher was kind of harsh. She wasn't a nice person, you know. She was very sour, very strict. I had a little thing about a ruler and stick and stuff with beating you with it. Uh, school finished. I've gone for food. Gone up, got dressed. Well, got changed, got washed. But eight o'clock, you all get in the bed. Then about nine o'clock, and your dormitory door opens. In comes John Beecham again, pulls back the bedclothes. And I thought, here we go, what's going to happen now? Pulled me out and took me down to the TV room again. But this time, as well as being staff, 
were about five or six other elderly gentlemen in the TV room. It wouldn't, they never had the main light on, but there was like lamps that were dotted around. A few of these chaps were smoking. So you had the smell of uh, alcohol. Bit of a muffy smell with the, with the old men. You know, because they got that smell, aren't they? Some of them. And I was taken to the first gentleman. And I didn't know who he was at the time. Uh, basically, touched me up. Looked at John Beecham. Said something to John. He took my hand. He pulled me into him. Basically, put me over his lap. The, the first ever, ever, ever incident was started with a spanking. As in, I got, you know, you got your ass whacked by an old man who then uh, put me into the chair afterwards, got himself undressed and, well, raped me. That rape lasted about hour. When he finished, oh, you know, again, I'm crying, I'm in pain. I'm traumatised. I was taken yet to another gentleman. So it don't just stop with the one. I was passed on then shown to another one. Who then proceeded to do the same thing to me again, but in different positions. So you kind of think you've had two or three hours of being raped, that your ordeal had finished. But it didn't. It just got worse from that minute on. You're then taken, what we used to, in freeways, on the bottom level, above the schoolroom, was a big, big room. We used to call it the bathhouse. That's where you always had your bath. The showers were never... They had showers there, but they were always disconnected. You always had to have a bath. I was taken into the bath uh, room by John... Well, bathhouse, bathroom by John Beecham. I'd go in there, and there was another member of staff called Clive, Clive Hill, who was the van driver, who was... If John Turner went around was the head man. He was he was like the go-to man, I suppose. Um, he would... The bath was then run. I was then placed in a bath. As I leapt back in the bath, I looked up and John Beecham put his great big hand on my face, pushed me under the water, and at the same time, he was playing with my, my, my private part. Basically, you know, can you say things on here, Sean? Yeah, you can say exactly what you want, yeah. Uh... Continue to, <coughs> excuse me, continue to wake me off as a 12-year-old boy. But he wasn't doing it nicely. You know, he was, there's no such thing as nicely, that's silly. But he wasn't doing it, he was doing it, he was doing it brutally. Mm. You know, he was doing it brutally. But at the same time, he had my face, he was pushing me under, letting me up for the slightest bit of fresh air. As I go, <gasps> I breathe, my head would go back under again, and he would, you know, continue to, to, to masturbate me with such, such force that y your foreskin was being pulled up and your actual penis was red raw with the, the brutality of, the, of what this man was doing, with the brutality. But, unlucky for Darren, again, story of my life, Cloyville then gets into the bath, part of my legs, Push John's hand that away, and he raped me. But whilst he's continued to rape me, Clive then had a thing. He liked. To, he liked. He used to like to strangle us in the bath. He used to like to put his hands on your throat and squeeze your throat as he was raping you. Okay, so I've got his hands on my throat. So my head's. I've not coming up for air now. I've got John John's hand 
on my face. So I'm literally fighting for air. I got water going into my lungs. I'm being raped. And I got John Beecham masturbating me brutally. Absolutely brutally being raped. So when you think your ordeal's over in the TV room, you're in for a big surprise because it's not. Because it all gets a lot, lot worse when you've got to go and do that. So basically, then the kids are getting auctions to these predators. Yes, mate. Yeah, you go in. It's like it's like a car auction. It's like going in. You're paraded around. You're taken to a gentleman. If he likes you, you're his. If the friend missed out next to him, have a guess what? He needn't worry because once his mate's finished, you are going to go with him. They will take his money. So there was a cast of characters present at this. And one of them also ended up in prison called Peter Tobin, a Scottish serial yeah. killer. Yeah, God. Yeah. He was... He's doing life now. Yeah, he was doing life, but he used to come with um another chap who was part of our... Well, he used to come in the home, and it, his name was Sidney Cook. So he's another... I, I don't know if Sidney Cook's alive or not still... But Sidney Cook was a notorious, from what I got, you know, from what police told me later on in life, that Sidney Cook, you know, Sidney Cook was a notorious paedophile. And he was really, really close friends with Peter Tobin. Peter Tobin would come into the home with groups of men. And again, you know, but Peter Tobin also used to be a volunteer at the house. Yeah, he used to volunteer to do stuff. If we used to go off to like sort of woods and stuff he'd be a volunteer he used to at the back of freeways was a big field where Lord Bath and his family used to come there more or less every day with his kids and let his kids run around the field and play with their horses and 7 out of 10 Tobin would always be chatting to him you know he was kind of like pretty close to him along with Sid Cook you know, they'd all be pretty pally, chatting on the gate with a cup of tea. You know, while his kids were running around. But this was Lord Bath's kids. But yeah, Sidney Cook was uh, a, a frequent visitor to Freeways. And so was Peter Tobin, a frequent visitor. So all the newcomers were getting terrorised then yep. by the head boy. Yep. Oh, what the hell? And then the pool room. Wow. So basically, with the pool room, we had a, it was just, it was a big room, but with a, with a normal pool, uh, size pool table in the room. Um, it was depending. That if there was more men that came that night, the majority would be in the TV room. But if you were taken to the pool room, you were put into an orgy. Because where the pockets were, that's where your backside ended up. So you were stripped off, put on the pool table, arms apart, legs apart, and you were basically moved around that table as to who wanted you and how long they wanted you. But the horrible thing with that was, there was, if I remember, there was in there bits of like, it felt like bits of pool cue that were inserted into you. Um... I think one of them, I, I, offhand, because you, you can't see it, but it felt like wood, it felt like plastic, obviously them, 
but where the pockets were was where a man was. So there were six men on that table to one kid. And you were literally spun round like it, like like a roulette wheel. So whoever got, you know, got you, it, basically you just passed around the table. That ordeal could last, if anything, up to a maximum of two and a half, three hours. Until they until they retired, until they were bored, until they done whatever they wanted to do. That was inserting instruments inside of you. That was them putting. It felt like bits of Paul Q. That was them spinning you around and heavily sexually abusing you. But you're looking at well, basically, where there's a pocket was a man. And because of this damage, you later on had to have reconstructive surgery twice. Back passage surgery twice because the first one failed. The second one uh, took. They couldn't go to the toilet properly. Was always in a lot of pain with the back passage. So you had to have it done twice. Jesus Christ. How old were you when you had to have the surgery? First one was 18 and it didn't take. Um, and the second one is in my 20s. Yeah, it's a good few hours under, under a knife for that one. Because in the end, they couldn't go for the back passage. They had to go from the bottom part of the spine and go down to reconstruct my back passage because of the brutality because of the amount of men you know that I was raped by and the things that were done when you were raped mm. you know for a kid it wasn't normal it was not normal for anybody but let alone a kid it's not normal for anybody mate so the next story was of Rainbow Woods yeah so basically what we would do we had a van in freeways so they would take us, six boys, four boys, to a place called Rainbow Woods, which is just as you're coming out of Bath. Um, I think it's if you go into a place called Midsummer Norton. It's a big, big wooded area. You get put in the van. You get taken by Clive. It would always be Clive Hill, John Beecham. John's in the front. We're in the back. Clive driving. Uh, when we were driving the Rainbow Woods, Clive had a little thing that he would try and swerve the van to make us boys shake it or move around and fall around in the back of the van. Or he had this little thing he used to love stopping suddenly just to wind you up, like put the brakes on because we had new seatbelts so that we'd all dart forward. And, you know, you were taken to a place called Rainbow Woods where the van would pull up. It was always late at night, nine hours past, sometimes ten. But when you got there, there was always cars parked up. You were then stripped off naked to the back of the van, this is a wooded area. So you had no shoes, no socks on. You were then taken into a, a wooded area, led into a bit of a dip, and you were told you had 10 seconds to get away before you were caught. They used to call it war, or they used to, the staff used to call it tag. That was their code name, war or tag. The, they lied, so you'd have like three or four seconds of trying to get away. Uh, just as you got away, you'd be caught. There are basically there was there are men scattered around waiting for you, and it was kind of like Hunger Games. Well, this is SRA, its greatest. So what happens then is you're let go. They chase you. They capture you. If it's two men, three men, four men, depending on how many boys there is and how many of their men there is there, they would then uh, proceed then to all rape you. So you'd all, you literally, if there was two, you're getting raped by two. If there's three, it's three. If it's four, it's four. Either way, you're getting raped. 
uh, as well as getting raped, you're then getting beat with bits of timber, beat with bits of branch, you're getting urinated on. The men that weren't raping you at the time, if they were stood watching, were masturbating over you, peeing over you, you know, getting beat. And, and gagged with socks. Socks, underwear. Uh, I had a tie put around um, by a certain well-known judge in Bristol. Uh, he used to put a tie around my neck and like to strangle, but he did it not just move, like not just myself, but all the other boys as well. He'd have a little fetish that he liked to strangle boys, and um, yeah. So Ash said it's documented that Jimmy Savile yeah. was linked to Rainbow Woods. Jimmy Savile, Peter Tobin, uh, yep, yeah, all had links to the woods and all had links to freeways. Every single one of them. So Beecham did go to prison for sex offences? Even about three or four times. But he's now out, as far as I'm concerned. The last time I seen John Beecham was 2012. And I met him in a doctor's surgery. Yeah, in 2012. What was that encounter like? I was in there because I just had uh, brain surgery. I've had a stroke at the time. I've had brain surgery. I'd gone in. It was a gorgeous sunny day, a bit like today now. Weird day. It was like a midweek, like a Wednesday. The doctor's waiting room was eerie. It was empty. It was weird. It's never that way. I've gone in, checked in, sat down with that very large man, old man, with two walking sticks, for some some strange reason, literally sat where you are. But what drew me to look at his face was the T-shirt he had on. It said, don't drink fresh water, because fish fucking it. And I thought, hang about, that's a bit naughty to wear to a doctor's surgery. He had these two walking sticks. As I looked up to see his face, it was John Beecham. He held his sticks, come forward, and smiled at me. He smiled at me. I sat back in the chair and I just froze. I was shocked. I didn't know what was going on. You know, I was 42. You'd have thought at 42, you'd have got him gone for him. But I was just, I was. it was the devastation. It was the pure shock. That a man, you know, literally raped me, was sat in front of me. He was there. He was in front of me, Sean. And I, I literally, I had to get up. And Lee, I, well, I ran out because I was in shock. I just couldn't believe it. I was sick. I got in my car and I drove up. But in 10 minutes, 10 to 15 minutes of leaving, the phone's gone. It was the doctor, Dr. Charlotte Mowat. And this is on, we got proof of this. Oh, this phone call is all down in notes. Everything's documented. She asked me what happened. I broke down on the phone and I told her. She asked me to come back. I went in the office with Dr. Charlotte Mowat. This was Stoke Gifford, Stoke Gifford Medical Centre in Bristol. And she said to me, Darren, my darling, she said, I'm sorry to tell you. She said, but he knew he was a pedophile. She said, but I didn't realise you were one of his victims. She said, I'm so, so sorry. She said, but we know. She said, but there's nothing we can do. He got a right as everybody else. If he has an illness, he got a right to be treated. And I just, I just broke down in tears. Just, you know, she thanked me for coming back. But I just, you know, it just brought everything back to me. I was absolutely devastated. You know, and 
my doctor knew and um, I was upset we had a good talk we left but the best thing was my doctor had rang the police and reported it to the police again on my behalf um, the next day the police uh, rang me up on a withheld number well it's a private private number not without it's a private I ain't got no, you know, I got nothing to hide. I'll answer without a private. I got nothing to hide, and it was the police who basically told me that because the only thing I did say, you know, to the doctor was that he literally lived up the road from the surgery, and that I, I I saw where he went. I knew the house. It was a place called Rock Lane, and um, obviously she told the police this, but not for me, but for him to say, look, you know, he's you know, watch him sort of thing. He lives, but she got his medical notes. The police told me that if I were to go to the house, contact him, that I'd get done for harassment. And that basically, I was to keep my mouth shut. And as I said to the police, that with all this, I got all documentation. I got years and years of doctor's records. I've been screaming for over 20 years about being abused, being raped. You lot have done nothing. You know he's a notorious paedophile. And they just basically told me to shut up. Silenced. Literally silenced. Insane. So there was actually a murder at Rainbow Woods. Yes, there was, mate. What happened? Uh, so, it was... <sighs> Lester Starling. Who was Lester Starling? He was a young lad who was with us. He was in our dormitory and he was in a group sex with an uh, elderly gentleman and um, his went a bit too far. They got carried away. Basically, he got strangled. I heard his... Well, I was about 10 foot from him when I was being raped. I heard his scream because he had two men that were raping him. I literally heard his scream. I heard his last, literally, well, we all did, his deafening scream. Um, and again, you know, yeah, I well, it gets worse than that on that case, I'm afraid, because, uh, you know, after witnessing what we witnessed, we were his lads. We were the one that dug his grave. We were the one that pushed that kid in. We were the one that had a bag for him. We were the ones that were told afterwards that if anything was ever said about anything, that we'd be behind him. That's how we were silenced as kids. That's how the, the fear was put into us as kids. But yeah, with Lester, what God would rest the, his soul. What were the abusers doing while you were digging the grave? Whipping us, urinating over us, masturbating, laughing jeering each other on to touch us, inserting their fingers into our backsides. We we dug the grave naked. We dug it great. We dug that grave naked. And at the same time, we're being abused. I think one of the the lads who was crouched down, don't hold me on this, but I'm sure that as the lad was crouched, he was being raped, digging it. That's how evil these people are. That's how sadistic they are. That's how vile they are. How did they get the body into the grave? No, we did. We did. We did. They didn't. We did. 
we had to push him and he fell in I know and you've been back there have you to just show respect and mark the grave yeah, yeah I have where you where you approximately believe it is yep has there ever been any inquiry or anything tried explaining it once before tried opening up the police and I guess what I was shut down mm. I was told basically to go away I was told to shut down to go away it's none of your concern it never happened well it did it did. That's the thing, Sean. So for kids like this then that get killed who are in Kerr, there's no family or anything that would research and check and find the out? The thing is, with the, the care system, with the seven, 60s, 70s and 80s, uh, just say for, I could have been one of those kids that at my age that could have been born into the, the family I was born in, that because mum being so young and there not been enough room for me at her parents' house, they automatically put you in the care system. You know, newborn babies. You know, Mike Tarago was there from like three days old. So you're born into it, or you gave up as a kid, mum don't want you, they put you straight into care. You're raised, there's no record on you, is there? No one knows you're there. Just let me tell the televiewers then. Mike Tarago, I've interviewed him twice. Um... He was in the curse system, horror stories. So if you want to see those interviews, they're all in the description box below this video, the, the True Crime Podcast. Okay, yeah, keep going and keep going. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So sorry, mate. Sorry? So you're um basically if you're one of those kids, you you're born into the into the curse system. All you are is uh, you're a bit of ink on a bit of paper. Not like nowadays when it's all cyber. You know, you're pen and paper. No one knows you exist, or they do, but no one knows where you are. Back then, it's still pretty big now, but the care system was everywhere. In every county in England, there was two or three approved schools. In Bristol, there was about 20 at one time. And Bath was more again. There was so, so, excuse me, so, so many around. You know, there was, that was, that was the thing. So if you was unfortunate to have been born into that, there's a good chance you'd have died in that. But the kids that were born in it generally came out messed up from it. Because it's, it's a bit like, you know, you're not giving love, are you? You're not showing respect, you're just being abused. So with Lester, how is it to miss him? It's not. All you do is put his file or his little yellow card, which you could get from LBW, which is a records place in London, but you won't get the file. All you would do is get a little card to say, yeah, that kid was there at one time. But all he do with the rest is put it into a fireplace. Then that's it. So people watching this think it can't get any more horrific, but the next story is about the stable, which you have described as the most sadistic abuse where the abusers that paid the most money attended. So basically, with Lord Bath, him and his kids, they kept um, horses, and he had a big stable at Freeways, which was at the back of the house. So uh, on the abuse side of things... Um, what happened in there was, if you were taken into the stable, you could have been taken into the pool room first or the TV room. Then if they wanted more lads, or they wanted what they called chicken, fresh chicken, cooked chicken or burnt chicken, depending on your age. Because of my age, I came in it um, like fresh or cooked, 12, 13, so you're still young. That's what I used to call it, chicken. 
that what, time of what Mike Tarragas said about the meat rack. So, you know, you, you're classed as chicken, you're fresh chicken still. So they would come, take you into the, what we call stable, I used to call it the stable, or some called it the barn. There'd be three or four men in there, could be more, if there were spectators, if they brought people along to watch. You were then stripped naked, you had rope put around your feet, around your waist, around your hands, and you were oisted over a beam with the last piece, which would go around your neck. You would then have your abusers, what they would do is put put tension on it, dangle you, depending on it, how they wanted your, the curvature on your body, they would tense the rope so your neck and your body would go back, which meant they could penetrate into you deeper. And that's what happened with that. It didn't happen with one, it wouldn't happen with two, there'd be three, there could be four. In there you'd get beat, you'd get flogged, you get things done to you because you're tied up. You know, I think the only good thing ever had come out of that was when I used, to, I used to pass out now and again. When you were strangled with the rope, when it was pulled too tight and you'd pass out. But again, after every brutal attack in that place, they didn't stop in the barn or a stable, whatever you want to call it. They didn't stop there. So with the stable, there'd be three or four boys all tied up being swung, being raped, and literally being like racks of meat, you were being pushed around to whoever wanted you next. An instrumental in this was the head porter at Martin's Hospital. His name was Ken Watkins. That was his place. That was what he liked. He, from what he was told afterwards by police as well, that he kind of took a liking to that. He was always, you know, if anything was to do with Ken, anything sadistic, anything heavy, we were always taken to the barn for that sort of treatment where you were tied up. Basically, you were strangled. You were strangled. But they pull the rope to tense it so your body would... That's your body when you're dangling. So your body could do that. So your legs would come in, your neck, and it would cut the circulation in your breathing so they could hold you with the rope, pull the rope, and so they, they could panic, go into you deeper. So... So Watkins would joke to the men entering the stable and say things like, they are warming up, Yep, they're ready, they're warming up, take your pick, they're all for sale. He used to, what he used to do, to warm you up, when he said they're warming up, when you were tied up, he would come behind you, put his two barons in your, on your, your bum cheeks and do that. Smack your backside and tell him, take your pick, they're warming up. Take your pick, they're warming up. I know. And he adjusted the ropes to adjust your body shape then. Got it in one. It's for the curvature. So your neck would come back, your feet would go in, so your body would dip. Your body would dip. Yep. But then, if that attack took two to three hours, don't forget, you were leaving there and you were going back in the bathhouse to be cleaned up. And we all know what came with the bathhouse. So every time you were raped, you can guarantee you, it happened twice after. If you weren't taken to the barn, or the stable, or the pool room, you were getting it in the bathhouse. Because that was John Peacham's little kick. He used to love, if he was on his own, or if he, if he had company with him. But if it was John, his favourite was to drown us, and basically mess with us with his hand. That was John's little kick. 
There was a situation in the stable where you were injected with opium. Yep, I've been injected. I was injected, and he, I got that wrong. That was in the TV room. TV room. That was in the TV room. So that they room. could manipulate your body yeah. easier. That was in the TV room. What happened was with the TV room, we had um, a, a certain individual came to our home on a few occasions. Um, a VIP. Is that okay to say, Sean? Yes, that's fine. Yeah, we had a we had a a VIP. He used to come to our house, like as in the home, the approved schools. It was a big, big house, and who had uh, a very big tendency for young boys, indeed. You know, even though this person was married, is married now. Um. And what you used to do, you used to like doing, was in- injecting your neck with um, like a opiate, like a morphine-based opiate, so your body would go completely limp. So that meant it, it which meant your body it wouldn't rigid. Then was it? It was kind of really floppy. That he could do whatever he wanted to do to you, and forever long he wanted, due to who this person was and a power he carried. You know, he would literally, he was out of, I would put him out of my attackers, he was one of my most brutal ones to, to date, due to the fact, when I, he's the only, he's the only person that raped me in that system, that I, I, I didn't even know why he did it, Sean. I look back, I know, I, I know I did it, I wanted him to stop, because he was that brutal. That his eyes were red, he had dribble coming down his mouth, and I just wanted him to stop. And I just looked, and his complexion, his face, it was grey. It was horrible. But he was a young man. He would, he would have been in his 30s. He was a young man back then. He was in his 30s. Um, and I just, do you know what? It was one of those moments when you wish you were dead for the pain he inflicted. It, I really do wish I were dead. It was horrible. It was horrific. But because he pushed too much, in, because he put too much into my neck, and it went on for too long, they basically, well, bowl accounts, I, I OD'd. But they say I was then dumped out onto Old Froom Road, where I was, you know, found, taken to St. Martin's Hospital. It, I was 13 then for a suspected um, opiate overdose, dressed in underwear. But here's the big joke that I escaped, I got out to get this stuff and did it outside the gate and left myself in a heap. One, I had no money. Two, the place was locked up. Three, I was in underwear. Four, I didn't know what drugs were. I never had a clue. I never had a clue. But the the biggest insult to injury in all this, because I was coming round, I was being spoken to by different doctors on this, what you call gurney bed, um, was the fact that from the waist down I had a red blanket and my backside was bleeding. But do you know what? No one looked at my backside. They were more concerned with the OD and that I escaped because they knew. Certain people in the hospital knew of people that visited that place. They knew the power these people had 
and they knew that going home at night, they had families to go to, so they were going to say zilch. Forget that boy, he's a no one. Leave him suffer. And that's what happened to us. That's how it's such a foolproof system, isn't it, for the paedophiles? That's, that's the thing. The bigger the paedophile, the more, more power they got. Goes with the territory, doesn't it? That means they can invite all their friends in. Conviction free. Conviction free, yeah. No matter what you say, no one's going to believe you because of the, 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 where you are. So, to this day, you've got a phobia of baths. Yeah, I absolutely... I, I'm frightened to death of baths. I don't like them. They really, 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 really scare me. It's the fact that I get it. I've got it in my head that I'm going to get. Someone's going to drain me, or they're going to do something to me. I've just turned fifty. I do not like baths. Um, I find it hard to even go into a bathroom with a bath stare or get close to the bath. I don't like it because it's always in the back of my mind. I'm thinking, is John Beach? I'm going to come for the door. Am I going to go in the bath? Am I going to die? You know. I got a few other phobias, but that's that's one of my biggest my biggest ones. Is it is a bath? So there wasn't just the horrors of the bathhouse. There was something that happened in what's called a paddling pool. Oh God, yeah. So basically, in the back where the dining room was, we had a bit of a courtyard with a bit of a fence, a bit of a high privet bush, and um, they used to have all year round a paddling pool in there regardless of the weather regardless if it can be snowing if they wanted a kick and used to put boys in there they put boys in there um the sad thing with the paddling pool was we had another incident like we did at rainbow woods i'm afraid that one lad was in there with four men around him and the poor lad lost his life the poor lad lost his life to, to four beasts. Was that we, strangulation? Sorry? Was he strangled? Yes, he was, mate. Yeah. Yeah, he was strangled. Because of their sexual perverse ways. Their horrible, horrible, vile ways. You know, because to get their kicks, the water was freezing, the lad had no chance, and you know what? We were all lined up. Because if he wouldn't have died, we'd have been in next. That's why there were men there. It was group sex. It was like four on one. They were all doing things to this lad in freezing cold water. But do you know what? Do you know how cowardly they were? They weren't in there. They were doing it to him in as he was in the water. You know, they put him in freezing cold. So what about the other staff, like tea ladies, psychologists, and people who could you know, have witnessed you had, this? Yeah, you had everybody that witnessed it. The teacher, you had two two tea leaders called uh, Dora and Emsy. They come on in night. You had uh, the Mingst, a lot of the staff or agency as well, used to see staff that would come for like a week and they'd be gone. The main, main, main staff was Ken Watkins. He was volunteer. So if he won't work in shifts, he came over. Was John Turner and his wife. His wife weren't there. Uh, Cloyville, John Beecham, Ken, and you had like other staff. That over years that just came and went, came and went. Um, psychologists, Jesus, they weren't interested because they were raving you as well. Along with the uh, probation officers, they were just as bad, mine included. The probation officer I was get, I was given, whilst there, used to come in once a week and rape me. And that guy was to go on afterwards when I left 
until I was 18 with me carer was my supervising probation officer. I had to see him every Thursday for two years after leaving care for me to keep quiet, to silence me. And people go, oh, yeah, you know, I'd have come out and gone to the courts or I'd have gone to the police, I'd have did this, I'd have did that. you got no chance. They're all involved. You know, you got old retired police officers, you got crime court judges that came to our place, you've got, you know, doctors, we had a dentist, you know. I've had a lot of things go on, mate, you know, a lot of things. Hence, you know, you know writing the book with my partner, um, you know, there, there'll be more, you know, there's be a lot of detail in, in, in the book as well. But we had, uh, as kids, we, we had a lot of bad, bad, bad things that happened to us in that place. A lot of bad things. Like I said, it was the people. You know, when you got a crown court judge. We used to get visited by a, 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 a one QC in particular who was very high up. I believe he passed in 1990. His name was Sir Ian Lewis. He was a very, very high-powered crime court judge. He was a visitor to the home all the time. He was a constant visitor. We used to have retired police officers that would come in, solicitors, social workers, doctors. I've been raped by a dentist, you know, depending on how randy he felt and how busy his day was. With the caring, this is how much they cared for us kids. We take we get three or four boys taken for a checkup at a dentist, or two boys, two girls, for a dentist visit. You knew that the minute that kid was going to go in that room and that door shut, you were getting raped by the dentist, or you were getting touched up in the chair. I got a phobia of dentists. I detest the chairs. You know, I with all this coming out of it, it's given me major, major, major trust issues. You know, I really don't trust anybody. And to be honest, I got good reason to as well. You know, for me to trust someone, geez, you got to be a good person. You know? Have stories come out about freeways over the years? People have come forward. Uh, and again, the minute people start talking, they remove evidence from the internet. At one time, there was a big piece on the internet about freeways, about certain teachers, certain members of staff. Then over time, they disappeared. They were taken off. But at the moment, we're trying to do some research on the place to see what we can find. And, you know, again, with this with these, this video going out and this podcast, if anybody who was there at the same time with me or after the, after the time I was there or before, I urge you all to come forward and speak out and seek help. Don't be scared. There's no need to be a coward, mate. We've got nothing to be scared for. I've had it all my life. Running all the time, keeping my head down, being scared, being paranoid about what they've done to me. But it's about time we stopped. We need to stand up now to ourselves. So if people want to come forward then, we're going to put your contact information yeah. below this video. Yeah, yeah. I'll be, you know, contact viable, you know, either Facebook or, um, I think my partner's going to do a, an email or a some sort of page that people can, you know, contact us and offer us, you know, give us their information and what they know so we can get it aired and shared and try and get, you know, before it's too late because we're a dying breed now. You know, and so are they, because they're a bit older than us, these, these pedophiles. Not many are left, but they're still around. they still got family, you so, know. So if you're watching this and you've been involved, you were a victim or you know information from that era, go down in the description box and contact Darren and 
let's get more evidence out there about this stuff so we can... Is it still open, Freeways? Uh, it's now a school for autistic babies. School for autistic babies, good yep. grief. I'd done filming there a couple of months back, eight, eight weeks back. How did that feel? Horrible. Absolutely horrible. I just went in via uh, John Wedger to do a, a video of the place and to bring Boo Woods. It, oh, it ripped me to bits. It absolutely, you know, it ripped me to bits. It's a weird one, really, because it was kind of like one of the worst days of my life. But then on a second bit, a more positive day in my life as well. So, you know. Did you film that one, James? No. No, we, we just filmed in uh, London. London. I've got a video of it. Have you put it online? Um, I think it's on. I think it's on John Wedgers. See if John let us put a little bit in here then, just so we can show people what it looks yeah. like. Because yeah, there's, there was like kids toys around, babies, prams, and it was seeing the prams and stuff, and seeing a sign for autistic children, autistic babies just ripped me to bits. So you got a home where like such brutality and people have died in the home or outside the home. And, you know, certain VIPs that have come to the home. And it now is a, is a place for, you know, autistic kids. You know? So the abuse was so prevalent and so casual that you walked in when Beecham was raping a female resident yeah. and he just smiled at you as if yeah, there was nothing, no one was going to stop yeah, this. Yeah, Debbie Yurch. Yeah. She was being raped by uh, Cloyville and John Beecham in the boot room. I remember that. Or I was, I think I was coming from outside. And I was coming in past the office because every every time you went in, if you, you used to want to dart past the office, because if you didn't, you'd get pulled in. So you kind of, as I went past the office, I heard like a whimpering and like someone crying in the boot room. As I opened the door, Dave, it was, uh, well, yeah, they were raping her. And just grinned, smiled. How, how old was she back then? 12, 13. Aye, aye, aye. Yeah, 12, 13. <sighs> yeah, her name was, so if she's listening or anybody that knows her, her name was Debbie Urch. Yeah, it was Clive Owen, John Beecham. Just didn't know what to do. Just didn't know what to do. Who'd you tell? And the, kid, the kids were so terrified that no one's just spoke about it. Well, how, how can you? Because... The minute you do, you get shut down because of the, the, the professionals that were involved with the place. You know, you've not got a leg to stand on, Sean. You've not. I tried. The only backup I got with this is on my medical records that I've mentioned for the last 30 years of freeways, abuse, and the people that have done it to me. It's all on medical record. I've done nothing but shut up about it because the police won't listen to me and doctors got to write it down. They got to write what you're going to the visit for. They got to. So I always made a point of going for different things, but I would always go on about the abuse and people that were involved. So for the last 30 years, it's all documented. All documented. But because there was important people participating... Exactly. Do you believe that there were people covering it up at higher levels of government? Yeah, there was. Yep. As there always is in this sort of case... You know, because, you know, as well as I do, Sean, that, 
you know, with the big powers of above, with the big boys, they, they'll always be protected. I mean, we can't go weak now, can we, without hearing of, of, of another name with link to paedophilia. You know, so this it's just so corrupt with the SRA. It is just so corrupt. What chance have kids got today, you know, of living a normal life? But what chance have people like myself, at my age now of 50, have got to be believed and the police actually listening to us and taking note and doing something? we got no chance. Absolutely no chance. Because you're tired of that stigma. Don't listen to them. They're from the approved school. They're nuts. They're an- we ain't nuts. We ain't nuts. We're as normal as anybody else. It's just that life was a little bit crueler to us lot. It really, really was. Because the government gave out a legislation it was that basically said, don't believe any kid that was in the care system. That came from the government because half of their friends were raping them kids. And that's a true fact. So what they done, again, was a golden handshake to protect their friends, to protect everybody else, was let the public know, ah, don't listen to him, don't listen to her. They spent years in an approved school. Forget it. They're traumatised by it. No, what we're traumatised by is the way we were treated, the things that were done to us. You know, they weren't, they weren't, there, to, they weren't there to love us. But they were, they were there to, you know, we were, they were paid to look after us. The government paid them to look after us. They weren't happy with what they were getting per week looking after us as kids. They wanted bigger things. So then they sold us. We were a commodity. I was a commodity for someone for, in that place, over four years. Like I was prior to that place. Like I was after that place. You know, when I left, I was a commodity to my probation officer for two years. But it's sick, perverse ways. Before we get to that then, how long were you in here for? Just over four years. I went in in 2nd of the 6th, 1982, and I came out in May 1986. Were there any periods of calm, or was it just continuous? No, it was As you got to 15, 16, you got left alone a bit, because younger boys were coming through. Because then you're classed as burnt chicken. You're classed as burnt chicken because your backside is tight. and Because after years and years of rape, believe it or not, your bowels and stuff relax because of the trauma, because of what's been done. Yeah, it actually relaxes, which is sad. You know, it's when you've been raped, it, that's what it does to you, Sean. It relaxes your bowels. You know, but as you get a bit older and your class is, you know, basically, like you say, you know, burnt chicken as such, the, the value's not there, is it? As you're getting older then, and bigger physically, the lads are getting bigger. Yep. Is there any kind of like notion of rebelling against it and attacking people or striking out against the predators? What you do, as you get older... And you got you got so much anger, ain't you, built up inside you? You really, really have. You know, you get a lot of lads, um, like I say, that have gone out, haven't they, and got certain individuals back, one or two that have ruined their life as such. Me, I was unfortunate to have met one of my t- attackers in a doctor's surgery, and I felt numb. You know, I felt completely useless, and to this day, it haunts me that I didn't do anything about it. But do you know what? I'm glad. I'm so glad. You're by I, surprise, didn't it? it I, I didn't expect it. 
You know, you don't go out, do you, looking every day to think, right, was it him that raped me, was it him that raped me? You don't, you don't go out looking for that. You know, you've got to live a normal life. You know, and if they do come across them, it's harrowing. It's like heroin, it's horrible. It knocks you for sex. It's not a nice feeling. But what you do get, a lot of lads, is myself included, you turn into like a violent person. You can, because you, you've got no trust issues. You strike out before people strike out at you. You do things that, you know, you're just protecting yourself because you don't want to let people in because you're thinking of what are people's motives. Why does that guy want to get chatty? Why does that guy want to get, get pally and call me a mate? What's he after? Is he a nonce? So before they're getting too close, and they could be decent people, you're striking them. You're going in, Sean. You know what I mean? It's just it's, it's what's been installed in you because you're, you're scared. I'm thinking, you know what? I'm 40, I'm 50. I ain't 18, I'm not 18 no more, I'm not 16, I'm not 12, I'm not 13. You know, I'm not having it done to me. And that's, it's, it's trust issues. So as you're getting closer to your release, what's your plan for when you get out and what's happening in the home? As in home? In in, in the care home, as the, I'm getting, the school. As I'm coming, as... 1986 started um things kind of with me relaxed a little bit as in terms of being raped you might get raped once or twice a week or you might even i had a spell where i didn't get raped for three weeks because your body's changing you're coming a bit more of a you're coming more physical aren't you in yourself you kind of you're getting stronger as a young man but i wouldn't get in as touched Unless you had a certain, you had one it come through that liked people like me. You know, blonde hair, green eyes, that was his type. You know, or they had someone it come in, it wanted a, a, a middle-aged teenager as such. Someone that had just turned 16, of whatever to take their box. Then they come and get you, and you were sold. Uh, plans, there weren't none. They never got us ready. All you were basically told on a weekly basis is what would happen to you when you left if you spoke. You know, what they would do to you if, you if you left when you spoke. And the sad, 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 sad thing was that in amongst all this was when I used to get visits every now and again, three or four months from my mum and dad, if they could be bothered to come and visit me, was how I kept quiet on a family visit was the man I hated the most in the world, my dad, was the man I protected. Because what they would tell me was when he leaves, we're going to follow him and we're going to kill him. I didn't want him to die because my mum would have no way of getting there. I wanted to see my mum. So to protect him, I had to keep my mouth shut about getting raped. I had no, I couldn't say, because I wanted to see my mum. Even though I went close to her, but I still loved her. I wanted to see my mum. Otherwise, with him gone dead and buried, you know, it would have been a nice thing, but I was never that lucky. But, um, you know, I wanted to see my mum. So to keep my mouth shut, I had to protect the man I hated the most in the world was that scumbag. Did you ever think about telling your mum? I told me mum. I told me mum this year. I told me mum. Not me and back when it was happening. What, whilst in the home? Yeah. No, because you always had a member of staff, would you? You always had a member of staff hovering around, stood by you. And what they would do is now and again, when they walk past, they rub their penis in your shoulder. Just to let you know, if your parents weren't looking, 
just to let you know that when they go, you're getting it again. You were you were primed before you went into the visit. You were primed when your when your visit was here. You were taken to a room, and you were told of what had happened. So you were a zilch. Visits for us were horrible. Mum would look at Dad. Dad would look at Mum. I'd be sat there just with me head down in fear, thinking, Jesus Christ, I want help. I don't want to be here, but what do I say? How do I approach it? If I tell you now, if I can't go with you, i got to stay here. i got to deal with these. You know, it was a horrible, horrible thing, Sean. It really, really was when you got no one to turn to and tell. You know, it's not nice. What made you just tell your mum then recently? Well, I told my mum before in the past. Okay. But I needed answers this year on certain yeah. topics of growing up. And I wanted answers because my mum's always been, you know, whenever I've approached my mum about stuff, I've asked her about events that have happened to me in the past as a kid. I've always been told to shut up, to forget it. It's gone now. Don't dwell on the past. But these things happen to me. So again, this year, we had a bit of a big talk in January of this year. And I told her some few own truths, which she didn't like. I told her that I liked her as a friend, not as a mum. I said, but not as a friend I love, just a, just a friend. And I was asking her about stuff that had happened to me, stuff my dad had done to me, that had done to me as a kid. I wanted answers of how I felt the pain I went through why did you do it why did you turn a blind eye why did you shut up to my cries you know and in she just wouldn't answer she just kept putting her hands on her head and going I don't know I don't know I can't cope with this well if you couldn't cope I couldn't cope but so I, somehow I've managed to I just and again I opened up about care she didn't like it but like I said to her you know, um, stuff that happened to care also happened elsewhere. You know, I want answers, and she couldn't answer me. She was asking me, do you, do you know where I got my mum properly, prop, not in a way talking was, I got my phone out, and I put it in my hand, and I said to her, if you don't give me an answer now, I will bring the police, and I will tell them everything. I said, so the choice is yours. If you don't talk, you and that scumbag upstairs will go to prison for a long, long time. I said, so the choice is yours. You won't do that? I said, won't I? Watch me. I said, you know, excuse the pun, I said, fucking watch me. I said, no one, and she wouldn't. She was asking me to leave and get out, and that's, that was the last I saw me, mum. So she was very young, wasn't she, and kind of born into this world of... Yeah, but very young and, you know... She had no respect for us kids because when all these beatings and stu other stuff was happening at home, mum could have took us away. Mum was offered places of refuge. Mum was offered a choice. Mum was offered to stay with family friends and parts of her family. But no, she always went back. She always put us in danger. You know? Which makes her complicit. Well, of course it does. So the night before you were set to leave freeways after there'd been a a lull in the abuse. They had plans for you. They had big plans for me. The night before I was due to be released, I went to bed. I couldn't switch off because I knew... I didn't really know what I was going out to. I knew I was going home, but to what I didn't know were things would still be the same, 
was I still going to walk into back into a house where there was abuse going on there? You know, was I still? I I did. My head was completely and utterly fried. I just had four and a bit years of this. I didn't know what I was going out to. All I knew was that one thing was for certain: that every week I'd be, I'd, have, I'd have to see Eric Pierce, who was a a resident of the house of where we were. He was a part-time judge. He was my probation officer, and he also did psychologist uh, psychology, and he also raped his kids. So the night before I was to leave, I was again heavily, heavily raped by John Beecham and a couple of staff members, just for like, you know, a going away present. Just to let me know on my last night that this ain't over. This ain't over. Like the next morning, I was reminded about the night prior, but don't forget, when you leave, you've got to see Eric Pierce. And we we will have you back here until you're eighteen, because back then he could do with care orders until you're eighteen, until you're eighteen. And if you do come back, you won't be going in. And that assault was done in front of the other lads in the dormitory. Yeah, in the dormitory. And as anybody who was leaving always always got raped in front of all of us. Everybody that was scare tactics. Everybody it was going got raped in front of us. Everybody. That was that you know that was just scare tactics, that was always the way it was done. That's how they scared us kids. It was scare tactics. They always did that, always. What happened with the probation officer who took you, supposed to take you home? His name again, Eric Pierce. I had to see him once a well once a week on a Thursday. When I would go to his office, he would then sit in his chair, rub himself up, or if he brought a friend with him. I'd be raped by him and his friend. But again, I was always told, don't forget, you're 16. We can still get you for another two years. You can still go back until you're 18. Choice is yours. Shut up and like it. Or open your mouth and you will die. But Pierce did get caught and go to prison. He did. Eric got. I think he got done, if I was right, he got done a couple of times. Not just once, he got out and got done again. Because he was one of them who got done on historic crimes in Bristol for boys. But again, because his, his case was going to court, some of ours was too late to be added on to the, uh, even the TICs. They wouldn't do it. They said it was too late. Uh, oh, heavy stuff, Sean. I mean... I don't know how you got through it, man. I don't know how you're still alive or anything. It's just... That, that's the thing. I, You know, there's days I have to look at myself now in the mirror. I mean, that's the sad thing. I, I can't really look at myself in the mirror, even until, like, today, because I hate myself for the person I see. I absolutely hate the... You know, I hate me because of what was done with me. I feel dirty. I feel used. I feel abused. I cannot, you know, I I don't love me as a person. I, I hate me as a person because of what was done to me. I absolutely hate myself. I feel, I just feel cheated. You know, it's horrible. It really, really is. I don't, it's just days I have to question how, how I got through it myself. It's not always been easy. There have been times I tried taking my own life where I couldn't cope. I ain't got no shame in that. I couldn't cope. Did, was, did you think about taking your own life when you were in? 
the school? No, I didn't because she would never left alone long enough to do it. You literally had no... You couldn't have done it, Eric. You had no privacy. You're a commodity. Were you able to make friends with anyone in there, any of the other kids? Yeah, I made um, pals with a chap called Anthony Lugo. Um, we've had uh, one lady who's contacted John Wedger as regards to... John Wedger got her details as regards to her, her husband being in freeways. And she says that he's a complete and utter mess. That he can't talk about the place without getting violent. Or he don't want to talk about the place. It drives him mad. He gets violent. He has outbursts. He's an alcoholic. He's a drug abuser. Again, so is the chap who's the, who's the only one surviving with me at the moment. He's in a mess. He's a he's on class A drugs. He's an alcoholic. He don't want to live. His life's a mess. But I've just tro- I've just chose it to try and make something positive of every day. I've had no choice. You know, I've had to make good of what I got at the moment. Did a lot of the kids who went through this get into crime and addiction and, and then ended up dead? Well, that's what happens because with, with crime comes addiction, with addiction becomes death. Because they're always chasing a the dragon. They're always trying to get that higher buzz to escape the pain. That's the thing because people, you know, put kids in a sort of stigma, don't they? They go, oh, yeah, you know, he's out of control because of this and... But they've never really stopped ever to talk to the kid. They've never really asked, you know, young John from down the road, two doors down, what the problem is, or what really is going through his nut. How you feeling, mate? What made you be this? I like doing that and that again, because you find out who the real kid is, and you you actually learn some own truths about what they've been through. Then you can understand. But yeah, that's that's what happens. They mess with drugs, and they do. Is it, it in some ways? It's an easy way out. It helps you forget the nightmares, the sleepless nights, the not being been able to eat, the hating yourself, the not being able to trust no one. You know, it's took me up until now, 50 years, to trust the first ever person in my life. 50 years, Sean. You know, and I've literally, it has, it's been the last seven weeks that I've actually, she's the first person I've actually, I trust. I believe what she says. You know, it's so hard. It really is. But after all that time, I've had someone come to me who I can actually, you know, hold and not feel dirty or not think, you know, of what's their motives, what's going for their brain. And they a paedophile. You know, it's took me 50 years to trust. 50 years. And, you know, I've been for a lot in my life. You know, I've got a daughter and stuff. I've got a son who I lost. Um, you lost your son? Yeah, mate. Yeah. What What circumstances? Uh, motorbike accident. Oh, jeez. Yeah. So, yeah, it's been tough. It's been tough. It's not been easy. It's been tough. So, <coughs> yeah. You know, um, but trust... You know, after all these years, you know, I'm, I'm not, well, I, I've, I've got myself, in, you know, a, a new life now, you know, a new, a new reason for living. I've got a reason to wake up in the mornings now. And you know what? It's a pretty good one, but it's not always been that way. You know, I still get, a, I still get bad nightmares most nights. And I really, really do. I still think of a lot of things. I'm lucky that I'm with someone who, 
who lets me talk, who who lets me talk from deep down inside. She doesn't stop me. She listens to my every word, and she's there for me. You know, and that's the, that. You know, I never thought that'd happen in my life after what I've been through with my life. Just didn't think it was possible. You know, trust. That's something you just you just can't earn, can you? You know, it's, it's, it's after going through this, I, my brain can't even comprehend what you've just been through and how you must view the world and view other people and how your sixth sense must be up about people trying to take advantage of you. And it's just absolutely flabbergasting. So it's great that you've reached this point in your life now. That's the thing of you know of where I am now, Sean. Like I said, you know, I've met someone. Um, She's fantastic. She ticks all my boxes, you know, but I, I trust her. You know, I actually trust this person. And, you know, she's out of my eyes. You know, she's become my soulmate, my best mate, my, my forever friend. You know, but she lets me talk from the heart. She listens. She doesn't judge me. She doesn't judge my past. And she she's the one that tells me every day not to hate myself. Because they've done this to you, don't let them ruin it. Don't let them ruin you. And she's right. Did you, when you was a kid, start to think this is my fault? Then yeah, 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 I did. Yeah, I did. That I, I did from when I was a very young kid. Thought this is my fault. There must be something about me that I've did it. I've let off some sort of smoke signal, but it wasn't. It because I was a young kid. I was vulnerable. I had no one to turn to. I had nowhere to go. Nowhere to run. And that was it. I was an open target. I was a commodity. I was a selling point. And, you know, I just... I had nowhere to go, mate. I had no one to listen. No one was interested. No one was there. You know, it's it's, it's a bit like today. I mean, if people... What makes, makes you open your eyes a lot more again with this is that people think that because uh, the majority of carings and approved schools are closed and, you know, are gone... There are still some in the community. You've got a thing now called fostering. It's, it's rife in fosterings. It really, really is rife in fosterings. And it's a proven fact. The only thing with the foster home is, is like looking at a car on Google or looking at a car, or, 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 I don't know, on Auto Trader. You can pick the kids you want to have stay with you. And it's true. And it happens. There's a thing called Google. All you've got to do is go in your search engine Look at kids that are in the system and hear their stories. You know, that's the sad, sad thing. And that's what I say at the moment. It's because even though me and you are sat here now, around the world, it it is very, very moment around the world, there is some poor boy and some poor young girl who are about to or have been or going to be raped because of the time differences around the world. This thing doesn't stop. It doesn't have a switch. It says turn off at 10 until 4 in the morning to give their bodies a rest. It doesn't care about that, mate. You know, I urge anybody at this precise moment in time, that if you're watching this video, hit like, hit share, tell your friends, tell the world. If we can stop it, we can stop it together. I can't do it on my own. I need backing. I need help. I need people to reach out. Talk to people. Don't just switch the video off and think, oh, that was great, what a poor bloke. I know, I've been through it. But we need to raise awareness. We need to share. We need to talk to people. 
we need to listen to kids' stories because it happens, mate. It's going to happen in 10 minutes' time. It's never going to stop. You've got all these big names that are coming out now that have been linked to it. You know? That's the killer. I'm sat here with big names and i got to keep me gob shut. So like yeah. I said earlier, um, people go down in the description box and check on Darren's links and reach out to him and contact him, especially if you've got information about freeways. Was there a time at freeways that you thought you were going to die? Yeah, there was. More or less every week. Every week? Yeah, every week. There was every week I thought I was going to die. To be honest, Sean, when I was taken to either the TV room, Rainbow Woods, the stable, the pool room, out in the grounds, uh, Ken Watkins had a... We had a rope swing made up. Ken Watkins had a rope thing with a rope swing where he'd like to tie your hands to the rope swing like a chair, hold you up with with your legs and bring men to swing you so him and his friends could rape you. You know, every time someone inserted their penis into where it wasn't fucking wanted, that's when I thought I'd die. So I didn't know when it was going to stop. I didn't know what was going through their brains. I don't know what their intentions are. What choice have I got? You know, I'm being raped. I'm being beat. I'm being everything you can think of. I'm living proof, mate. I'm here. I'm the one that's still got to carry the pain. It's horrible, Sean. It destroys your soul. Do it at night. That's why you still have nightmares. Why do, why do you think these paedophiles exist? What motivates them? What's going on in their minds? Huh. Well, one, they got big backing because it's such a big business, isn't it? Mm. It's, 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 it was a money spinner, was it? You've got to think. They, they say that the adult sex industry on young kids is a, multi, is a multi-billion thing. It's not like a small load. It's massive. It's people that are in high professional jobs or VIPs or celebrities. They've got everything they want in life. But what they got is never enough. But in it strange? They always know of a foster family or a little caring. they got people like little Darren was. When they can just come along, pay their fare, ruin that boy's life. Not a care in the world. Not a care. We just had to be like little rag dolls and be drained and be pissed on be spat on, be bit, be whipped, be abused. Then he want to fire you out in the road at fucking 16 as if there's nothing wrong with you. Go on then, fuck off, you've had your fun, on to your next, and he wonder why you go off the rails. They wonder why you're wired to the moon. Well, you know, excuse me, I've just been raped for four years. Oh, did you get any counselling? Yeah, I got counselling. Yeah, what was it? Well, I got raped in front of all the kids the night before I left. And was told the next morning to shut my mouth. Because I'll be back. Yeah, that's, that's cancelling. But going back to your question, Sean. With all this paedophilia. It's because we're easy targets. People got horrible, perverted minds. They're not happy with being married with the two kids. Because they can't do it to their kids, can they? Because kids are going to go and tell mum. Mum, dad's doing this to me. Mum, dad's doing that to him. So have a guess what they go and do. They go and find a poor innocent kid that hasn't got a voice that no one gives a shit about. The kid that is taken from his family. The kid that hasn't got a choice. That's why it's such big business. And you'll be surprised, mate, if who's involved. I mean, not being funny, I can't really read or write. I'm not the cleverest of people. 
but I still got heart. I'm still a good man, but I still know what goes on on the internet, and I can work out the news, and it ain't good stuff coming through. You know, there's not a day goes by when you're about Galeen Maxwell or a certain member of a certain family with his dirty little antics. You know, they're all out there. The names of the celeb worlds, you know, they used to visit us in freeways. You know, they used to visit us. I'd love to say who they are. I'd love to. Because you know what? Some of those are still living, just like me. They need to be brought to justice. They really, really do. I've got judges. I've got a VIP. I've got celebrities that came. You know, Lord Bath. The home was owned by Lord Bath. You know who Lord Bath is? You don't know who Lord Bath is? Okay, so Lord Bath um, owned, well, did own Longleat House. It's a place called Longleat Safari Park. He owned where we lived. He was a regular visitor to our place at night. He had lovely little tenants in his mind. But what was to hurt with Lord Bath was, day after raping you, he'd be in the barn with his kids, going to his kids, oh, look, there's Darren. Don't talk to Darren. Darren's strange. So to put me head down and walk away. Darren was only strange because that kid's dad raped me the night prior. You know, you're all familiar with the uh, the Bishop Peter Balls. You know who that is? Yeah, another visitor to freeways. You know, he used to come to freeways. I'd been raped by him, so have every, every other lad. But, you know, luckily for... The, you know, the Bishop Peter Balls, he had a good friend who got him off with stuff. So... So there was cases against him? No, yeah, he was convicted and everything. Just mm. Google. Mm. He's not long come out of prison. Mm. They just, like, give him a slap on the wrist. Because of who he is. Because of who you're pals with. If you're pals with the right people and you're a paedophile, you're laughing. So you know, said it's a multi-billion dollar business, multi-million dollar business then. Did they video the kids and sell videos and stuff like yeah. that? Did you see any of that going on? I or? didn't, but I did hear of it. Yeah. I did hear of it. I was really, really, really pally with a chap called Nick, who I was in care with, who took his life a couple of years ago, well, a few years back. And he, he, he did mention that he was in a video. So, hence taking his life. Mm. Not because of that, because of other circumstances as well, but he did come across it. So your story then is so long, we've only done the early years now. Yeah. This is this is just part one. We're going to have you come back to do the second part. Do you want to just tell the viewers what you're going to talk about in the second part, please? Yeah, so coming back, I'm coming back with Sean next week. I'm going to talk about uh, the leaving care, my life for crime, life of going into organised crime and the the prison years and of what I went through in prison from Borstal, DC, right the way through to the dispersal system. Again, you know, um, it's made me of who I am. You know, it really, really has. It made me of who I am. But again, they're interesting because they're, they're what drove the boy to become a beast, for a beast to become an animal. Then... At the end of it, I found me again. You know, thank God. Um, but yes, yeah, it's, it's going to be very interesting. That's that's another uh, another good story, and very some very good things are going to hit up on that. And what do you want to say to the people watching this part one? 
again to the people that are watching part one again i urge you please i urge you please 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 don't it like don't just it uh share tell the world please raise awareness sean they need to do something about it they need not to just look at my video and think poor like i said just now poor bloke been through hell can't wait for part two to see the happy ending of happy ending of his life as to where he is that's not what it's about you know like we said there's a boy and go out there tonight mate there's a boy and go out there now let's stop that let's stop them being raped let we had never curved this because it's too big it's worldwide it's in australia it's in america they've hit europe with it we us here in the uk it's all over the place it's terrible but if we can please please share my story help me contact me via facebook I'll talk to you. I'll come and meet you, Duke survivors that are in pain. I'll help you see justice like I did. Don't suffer in silence. It's the worst thing. Don't think about taking your life. Do what I've done. Grow a set and try and fight it. It's not been easy. And it's going to be hard. But I'll get there. So. Oh, great, great message to finish on then. A truly harrowing story. I can't even like think clearly right now after hearing all that. But for people who've watched this, please put your how what you think of it in in the comments below. If you've got questions for Darren, put them down there. Like I said, um, please click down on his stuff, reach out to him, support him, what he's doing. Very important mission here. And um, you know, huge thank you to everyone out there watching this video. Huge thank you to the people who subscribed. Subscription logo is in the bottom right hand corner. Huge thank you to people who donated so we can film in studios like this. All those links in the description box as our links to all of our other stuff and our socials and everything else. Jesus, man, if anyone if wants to hug anyone, it's you. Just give us <laughs> bloody hell, Darren. Can't believe you've been You are sweating. Yeah.